0: Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Stop the Killing is proud to be supported by our sponsor.
1: EZPA. Easy EZPA Easy is an integrations-capable communication software that connects older building systems, such as signage and public address systems, to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass communication systems. Go to EasyPA.com. that's ezyp to learn how to integrate your systems today.
2: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
1: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the
0: FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome back to part two of our bonus episode on Run, Hide, Fight versus Lockdown. A debate that Catherine participated in hosted by Joffe Emergency Services with Catherine in the Run, Hide, Fight corner and Dr. Jacqueline Shieldkraut in the Lockdown corner. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to start there. You'll find it as bonus episode 23 on whatever platform you're currently listening to this on. And before we get started, a quick shout out to our newest Patreon member, Emily, who also has an amazingly Absolutely brilliant Instagram channel called at Mrs. Zero. Mass. Shootings. If you follow Stop the Killing Stories on Instagram, you may have already spotted her posts shared on our page. Emily puts up such great quotes and graphics that can be reshared on your Instagram so everyone can start their own conversations. With that, let's crack into part two of the great debate Lockdown versus Run, Hide, Fight.
3: where we just left off we were beginning to think about and talk about the places where maybe the best intentions have gone awry. Let's take a moment and if if maybe each of you could share a couple of the drills or experiences where where well just that happened, where the best intentions went awry. And ideally I think what what I hope to make sticky in this is, you know, sort of the what not to do because I think so often especially when it comes to public safety education public safety folks, right, people who uh, carried a gun for a living, who carried a hose for a living, who push a gurney for a living, right, who have this experience might be doing training in a completely different way and might have a completely different perspective on how they best learn versus how, say, students best learn. And so it can be easy for people to, again, with the best of intentions, kind of create a, a an experience that, that we might define as traumatic for a student. Um, so Jackie, I'll start with you, uh, and then Kate, we'll go next to you. You know, I don't want to like toot the horn
2: or anything, Um, we've been very fortunate not to have any traumatic experiences with our students um, during drills. And I think that that comes down to the fact that we are utilizing the best practices from groups like the National Association of School Resource, sorry, National Association of School Psychologists, National Association of School Resource Officers, and um, Safe and Sound Schools. And so, you know, just to kind of quickly outline those, we always want to make sure that we call drills as drills. No one should be thinking it's a real practice. We always want to ensure that we're not using any sort of sensorial technique. So again, we don't need to simulate active shooter situations to practice a lockdown. We want to give people opportunities to debrief at the end, right? You can't just expect them to go from sitting in a corner to back to learning. You have to like let them exhale and talk about their experience and ask questions and have a conversation. So I think because of all that, we've been very fortunate that even coming in, so our drills are always unscheduled. They're never unannounced, but the schools don't necessarily know when we're coming. We've been very fortunate Not to have anything really go awry. Um, You know, certainly we've all heard the stories of the drills gone bad where teachers are getting shot with pellet guns and students are being exposed to crisis actors covered in fake blood and sounds of simulated gunfire. And that is all so incredibly problematic. Um, You know, I think, as I said earlier, it's not what you're doing, it's how you're doing it. And, you know, so I think to say, you know, that the drills that we've run, you know, do we see things that are going wrong? Absolutely. We had a drill. Now I won't tell you what school it was. Um, but we had a drill where the littles were in the cafeteria and we came in. And so the plan was, and this has been the plan the whole time is they are going to split up because the gym is attached to the cafeteria. So some will go in the gym and some would go into the serving area and it was new teachers and they didn't know the plan. So uh, the cafeteria leaders are going, come, come, come. And they're like, And what ended up happening is eventually the cafeteria ladies were like, we got to save ourselves in this practice. They locked down, the gym's locked down, and I've got three classes of kindergartners sitting in the middle of the cafeteria. Um, So that's, again, where there's opportunities to improve, to address the problem. We had a conversation. I said to the principal, look. Can we come back in the next drill and do another lunch drill? Let's see if we've gotten this figured out. She said, absolutely. We came back. Problem was solved. So I think one thing that's really important is, you know, yes, we do things wrong, but I think that there's also ways that we use them as learning opportunities. It's only a, an actual loss if we don't learn anything from the mistakes we make. You know, I think
1: after every incident, um, you know, I, I hope everybody understands that after every single incident, you run an after-action. The local police will run an after-action, uh, the districts will run after actions. businesses will do an after, I do that. And my client base is primarily corporate-based, the big companies, little systems who are saying, you know, what can we have that's consistent, like you said before, and how can we incorporate that into, uh, particularly for businesses? You know, taking people offline to train is money. It's money, 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 money. And training is a cost code. We all know security is a cost code. So for businesses, it, the idea is you need to make sure that you run your process and you still allow people to you know go about their business. And I think in a school environment, that's exactly what we want people to do. But I think what happens is we go for the low-hanging fruit and in lockdown, that's the challenge that I find with people saying lockdown's the way to go. I think it gives people the justification for the low-hanging fruit. We get locked down in so many more ways that we don't get run or fight. It doesn't mean that we don't want run or fight and we don't really train to run or fight, but I think it's a comfort zone and people go to it. When I look at errors that are made, as you mentioned, I think it's been a learning process on how do you run the drills and the idea that we're going to be traumatic and we're going to have a drill run where we're going to make people think that somebody else down the hallway is shot. All of that is bad. I mean, that's something that I think I stressed when I was writing about it. You can train all the way down to the littlest age. We don't we don't take a child off a plane when we're giving the warnings about the plane going into the water. We account on the fact that the adults who are sitting next to them are going to speak to them in a way to make them not be afraid that the plane is going to you know blow up in the sky. There's a lot of things that kids face every day. And we count on the fact that the adults around them are able to put it into the right language but we have to let teachers who are trained to speak to that age group teach that age group in a safe way and allow for them to have their conversations back like you mentioned about instead of just a we're going to walk down the sidewalk and sit here we're going to lock down a room and just sit here and we don't really know what's going on but you be quiet what are you training first graders in you're training them to be quiet I mean, you're training them to be quiet and to follow directions. You're not training them to dodge bullets. So I think that you don't need to have the noisy bullets. And I think that was a learning process through the training companies that did develop training. And they said, well, in law enforcement, we we need to get our heart rate up and we need to simulate. And I get that. I mean, I have been in scenes with my gun out and thinking, am I going to be dead in the next two minutes and leaving my kids without a mom? So I get that. But that's for an adult. Kids should never, and truthfully, no one should ever be trained in a traumatic way. There's no value. What you train them in is that this causes trauma, but you should absolutely be training, but no unannounced drills, no noisy drills, no simulated blood. I hear a lot of places say, we want to teach them the sound of a gunshot. Should you be doing that to elementary school kids? No. I think what you should be doing is teaching them that when a potential emergency happens, you need to react to it. Because we had a situation just recently where some teacher thought she heard something and she took a bunch of kids out of the school and went down the street and then called the police and said, I think this happened. And you know what? She was wrong. And you know what? That's okay. I think that's okay. So it, it's got to be somewhere in between, but at least she had the confidence to take those kids out of the building because she thought they were in danger. I'm good with that.
2: I had to respectfully disagree here. Um, you know, I think it's a little bit of a downplay to say that lockdown is the low hanging fruit because I don't think that it is. Lockdown is what we know works because of what has happened in all the other shootings. Um, you know, that how many people have or have not been killed behind a locked door. You know, I think one of the challenges is, you know, I've trained personally kids as young as three. I've trained more than 20,000 kids. And I'm going to just kind of use this as an anecdote, not a plug, but if you want to watch it, it's online. Um, <laughs> we, when we did our initial training in the district, it was the spring of 20, So somewhere between January and March of 2019. That year, CNN called, which I fell out of my chair and was like, do you have the right number? Um, but CNN called and they said, look, we're, we're really interested in what you're doing and we want to come out and film you. And could you, by the way, put on a training so that we can film the training for the cameras? And I said, okay, fine. So here we are eight to 10 months later from when these kids were trained. I don't remember the exact date of their training. And if you're familiar with the I Love You Guys Foundation's materials, it's all pre-packaged. Anybody can download it right. and use it. It's phenomenal. But it it's a directed... PowerPoint slide. So here you have kids who have not been trained for eight to 10 months, who are three slides ahead of me, because when you're dealing with children, they remember things in the order that you tell them. And one of the the challenges that I see with run, hide, fight is that it leads with run. I've had schools say, well, they're in a classroom, but can they leave? And I'm like, not really the best option. If you are in a space where you can get into that lockdown, that should be your initial thing. And so I think, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but you also can have a situation like Sandy Hook or probably what happened in Uvalde, which is where the adults get taken out first. And then you have kids who are going to defer to what you taught them in the order that you taught it to them. And so I don't necessarily think that lockdown is the low hanging fruit. I think lockdown is what we know the evidence shows to be successful.
1: You know, I think we're talking about semantics because I don't think that we disagree about this. I think that it's the way that you posture the question, which is often the situation, right? Because there is no doubt that in situations where shootings have occurred, the vast number of people lock down and the vast number of people are safe because of it. That doesn't mean that a shooter is at the door. We know that. Locking down works. Look at Virginia Tech. Great example. Three different classrooms. The classroom where the doctor was who held the door with somebody else and 20 kids plus uh, jumped out the second floor window at Norris Hall, just down the hall from him. Christina Anderson's French class where most of the kids were killed or injured. Everybody in the classroom except one person was shot. And then not too far, like right across the hallway, 10 people in a classroom who heard the sounds, barricaded the door and said, no one is getting in here. They barricaded the door and he tried to get into that doorway a couple of times and he never got into that doorway. And because of lockdown, those people survived. And Christina's room in Norris Hall, there was no lock on the door. The shooter came into that room three times to shoot people and the last time to shoot himself. So I think that there are definitely practical aspects of the fact that most of the people in situations, in shooting situations, hide behind a door, hopefully that's locked, and they survive because it is such a quick incident, right? But look at Navy Yard as an example. In the Navy Yard case, you have a shooter who's in the building for about an hour where law enforcement can't find him. But early on, somebody pulled a fire drill and the building emptied out. And I know that that's what happened, of course, at Parkland. The fire alarm went off at Parkland. It wasn't pulled, but it went off, we think, because of the smoke from the rifle. So the building empties. And on the third floor, we had a shooter in the hallway as the kids are emptying out of the building. But in Navy Yard, the fire alarm is pulled purposely by someone and the building empties out. We had a shooter hunting for people for 45 minutes, hunting for people, and he couldn't find people to kill because Mm. the building was empty. So I think every case is its own situation. And in the case of Navy Yard, people fled and survived because of it, right? And you could say, oh, thousands of people survived because they fled. I don't think that's the right way to even look at it. I think, yes, lockdown saves Thousands of lives every year, I'm sure, in shooting situations. But if you only pick lockdown because you're afraid to teach the other options, then we're not really giving the weight of the time to train them in the other aspects of what to do if you are not near
2: a classroom. That's the
1: part that I worry about the most. Uh, that's the part I worry about the most.
2: Right. But but as I said, we don't not teach them how to do it just because we're not actively teaching them to fight each other or fight a shooter um, or that we're not telling them run. We're saying self-evacuation is an option. It should be your last option. And please don't do it in the middle of a drill So we don't want you going home for mental health day. Um, you know, we're not, again, because we're not calling it options-based doesn't mean we're not talking to them about options. I think that one of the other things, you know, listen, I think that there are, I don't, I'm not jumping your question. Um, I think that there are certain situations where run high fight is an absolute appropriate strategy in an open space, like the concert venue in Las Vegas or the El Paso Walmart. Yes, there's no place to lock down, get out of the building or fight for your life. if That's your only option. But Navy Yard was also a very open space with a lot of cubicles and not a closed building like a school. And so I think we also have to acknowledge that environment also dictates what you can and cannot do in those certain spaces.
1: Well, you know, data shows that middle school and high school shooters If you don't know this, you absolutely should know. The middle school and high school shooters are students at those schools. Statistically, so that's the threat, right? I mean, I didn't mean if you don't know that. Oh, I. I mean, if they. We're in trouble, right? (laughs) Yeah, if you don't know that, we're in trouble, right? So, you know, half of the active shooters in the United States uh, happen in places of business, and a quarter of them happen in schools. So in places of business if you divide you can divide those into places that are all locked down there's no public transit malls there's public transit through a target right but uh, there's no public transit at the local shipping facility those businesses that are, do not have public transit through them their shooters are also inside and i think that's part of the difference is that in a middle school and a high school situation your shooter is likely one of your students and you or one one who you just had leave the school or in the last year or two has left the school. And we know that because of the data. And so your shooter is in the schools and people say, Oh, you know, well, we don't, the shooter going to know exactly what our drill is if we run a drill. No. I mean, that's silly. Don't worry about that. It's true that the shooter's going to know what the drill is because they've been through it. We don't care. You're don't have time. They don't have time. They don't have time. The concept of run, hide, fight is about, Ensuring that you give enough time, you don't give an excuse to an afraid parent or an afraid administrator or an afraid teacher. You don't give them an excuse not to focus on these other magnificent amounts of time when we see the shooters who are nowhere near a classroom. Most of the kids absolutely are going to lock down. Look what happened at Sandy Hook, right? Lots and lots of kids locked down at Sandy Hook. That first classroom door that the shooter walked past had a shade pulled, light out, He didn't even try to go in the door, right? And why was that shade pulled down? They think because Sandy Hook had run active shooter drills and the shade had not been put back up, right? So I think that we can learn a lot every time. I'm just concerned when we only talk lockdown that people are going to use it as an excuse to not talk about the others. And you, as a skilled full time educator in this area, you have the knowledge and you have the data behind you, this practice and the training and articulating it to everybody else. But I feel that what happens is you have one person whose responsibility to throw up three slides at a faculty meeting and talk to the faculty about it. And they don't have that background and they don't have those skills to say, this is equally important. The FBI, a few years ago, after after All-I-Nation's shooting in Las Vegas, the FBI came out with a new film too to say Escape just one word, escape. That if you're in a spot where you need to just escape, then you need to do that. I think that where the rubber meets the road is the idea that so many schools, maybe not your schools because you're training them in the options, but so many schools don't want to cross the threshold into a more uncomfortable situation. And that's the part that scares me because I know those are the lives that could be saved.
2: Those are the same schools doing the bad drills though. (laughs) Right.
1: Those are the same schools or doing no drills. But they're doing a fire drill every year, and we haven't lost a kid to a fire in the United States since the 1950s. But we're running fire drills three times a year, but only when the weather's good, because we don't want the kids outside when it's
2: raining. (laughs) Not when it's cold. (laughs) Not when it's cold. Tell that to the people in New York.
0: (laughs) And now a word from our
1: sponsor. EasyPA is an integration-capable communication software that connects older building systems, such as signage and public address systems to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass notification systems. Additional features include built-in automated bell schedules, remote access, text-to-natural voice announcements, and custom audio playlists. EZPA is one of the only full-service public address and communications companies that has in-depth knowledge on both the hardware and software aspects of communication and evacuation-based products. As a solution-based company, they offer design, supply, installation, and maintenance of all their products. And for use in schools, PA software provides multi-zone capabilities, pre-scheduled daily announcements and bells, and a remote alert button that can be accessed from anywhere in the school. Once a panic alarm is triggered, law enforcement is notified immediately. PA makes schools safer from any threat. Go to EasyPA.com. That's E-Z-Y-P-A. Dot com to learn how to integrate your systems today. If you want to be a reseller or integrations partner, visit easypa.com to learn more. That's E-Z-Y-P-A
3: Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, I hear you both saying a few things. One is that actions of an individual person can make all the difference. In fact, the actions of each individual person maybe are what are going to make all of the difference. And so in some ways, what I hear you both saying is it, it matters less which strategy you adopt as long as you adopt it thoroughly and completely. I'm hearing you both say that training and practicing are both critical. I'm hearing you both also sort of share in the belief that The goal is to put something between the person that's on campus to cause harm and everybody else. And ideally, that's time and space and walls and doors and locks and police, right? There are all these different layers. And so ideally, we're sort of scaffolding multiple barriers or obstacles or or something between us and this person who's here to cause harm, right? So our goal is to buy time, to get the police there, to have them take care of the problem and to get us back to a position of safety. And along the way, there there might actually be multiple things we could do. Um, I want to kind of pivot for a moment and ask the question, what are the data that we don't know? What are the curiosities that each of you have that either might push your thinking or maybe that would further support the position or further support lockdown or run, hide, fight.
2: You know, I think one of the challenges is this area of research from a scholarly perspective is so new. The work we started doing was fall of 2018. And prior to like the stuff we started publishing, there's three studies and they're very small samples. I mean, we're talking 32 kids or 74 kids. It's nothing on this big of a scale. And as as proud as I am of the work that we've done. The reality is, is we've done it in one school district and 30 of 130,000 public K to 12 schools. I appreciate your, if I could clone myself, I'd love to be everywhere. I can't. And so I think that there's a lot that we don't know. You know, as I said, these are kids who are not likely to have a parkland. I'd love to replicate the work in a suburban school district. I need somebody to give me scholar or grant money and a district to do that in. But it came down to who opened their doors to me, who didn't say, this is someone else's problem. It's never going to happen here. That was the challenge we had somebody who was proactive who said we want to do this. So I think that there's a lot we don't know in the even just in the context of lockdown drills about what this looks like in a rural community versus an urban community versus a suburban community. I think that we do need more research into the longer term effects. You know, we know that skill mastery can be built and maintained. We have not done as much follow up on the mental health impacts of drills. And I think one of the biggest challenges is the research that's out there focuses on lockdown. So there's a lot we don't know about run, hide, fight, or any of the more options-based protocols. And I think in order to make a more meaningful comparison, we need to have more research in this area. So if anybody would like to grant fund research, we are happy to take your research dollars. Yeah, I think some of the challenges to that, right, is that It's hard to research
1: what didn't happen, right? So, you know, we kind of look to other things. Some of it is anecdotal, right? You know, Frank D'Angelo, who's a friend of mine, he was a principal at Columbine High School. And I had this conversation with Frank on my podcast with Sarah Ferris, And we talked specifically about this. I said, what do you think about run, hide, fight? And he said, if our people had been trained in run, hide, fight, more of us would have left the school. We had 117 kids. Down the hallway in a coat closet, which i I was in, and it's a room that's like a, a it's very small, it's a tiny little room. And they had one hundred and seventeen people jammed in that room, and you could see the doorway to get out. But he said, we never provided any discussion <clears throat> at any time about the option of leaving the school. So we had, you know, a teacher bleed out. We had other kids who, who stayed in lockdown who maybe could have escaped the school. And I think that's the challenge, right? Is you got to walk through every little space. My daughter I mentioned is a middle school teacher. She has the last classroom in the end of the hallway. And she said to me after Uvalde, she said, you know, I talked to the principal and I said, you know, if something happens, we're leaving. And I said, Oh, how did that go over? And she said, he knows I'm not kidding. I mean, what that tells me is. What you said, it's make a decision and know what your alternatives are, right? And we're learning every time we get another piece of
2: data. One thing I, I think we have to acknowledge here, um, you know, and I say this as somebody who not only grew up in the Parkland area, but also went to college in Orlando, where we not only had Pulse, but another mass shooting that most people don't know about that I was two blocks away from in 2009, Mass shootings in America are horrific and they devastate entire communities. These are incredibly statistically rare events. Homicide in America is 0.1% of offenses that are known to law enforcement. Mass shootings are less than 0.1% of that 0.1%. We are, so I think to, and I agree with you, but to say suburban communities are at more of a risk. Of 0.1%, right. 0.1% is no, threat, a good, is good incredibly, point. incredibly, we have to be very careful in how we couch that. So I think the one thing that I would want to leave schools with is we need to plan not only for the very worst day, but for every bad day. That's where taking an all-hazards approach comes into play, where lockdown is not only effective for an active shooter situation, but if you do have a threat of a weapon or again, I grew up in South Florida. And if anybody on the call knows where Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School is right off the Everglades. And if you know about the Everglades, people like to get exotic pets and then let them loose in the Everglades. It's not not unconscionable that you can have dangerous animals get into a building. Pacific Northwest could have a bear or a moose. I'm not trying to sound dramatic here. You don't want children interacting with them any more than a person with a gun or a knife or any other violent weapon. So I think we need to plan for all of the bad days, not solely focusing on the very worst day, you know, and and searching out for the needle in the haystack that may never come. So I I just want to kind of leave that context.
1: Yeah, and I would just say safety is about not if it happens.
2: Safety is about
1: being prepared in case it happens.
0: Well, that concludes the debate on this bonus episode. But join us next week to hear the Q&A that followed on from the listeners on the Joffe webinar. And if you can't wait for part three, then you can access the full video debate at patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now or access it on Apple Podcasts, where you can now find the podcast ad free and one week early.
3: You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the
2: power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.
3: Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomena slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com